Amen, amen. Hey, grab a seat, and as you do, uh, get a copy of God's Word in front of you to John chapter 4. If you're newer to navigating the Bible, the book of John is the fourth book into the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find it there. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to pull it up on a phone or a device, uh, but get God's Word in front of you. I want you to, to know and to see that everything that, Lord willing, we teach from this pulpit comes right from the Word of God, because our words don't matter, His words does. Come on. Yeah, all right, all right. Uh, we are in this series we're calling The 4W Life, and it's our hope that uh, if, if uh, God will do this right, and we know he will, this will become more than a series, but the culture of what we mean when we talk about being disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, um, Jesus left us with a commission, with a mission to give our lives to, that we would go and make disciples of all nations. He didn't say just make church attenders or just make some morally decent people. He said, go and make disciples, that we get the privilege of being called into a followership of Jesus, and then he gives us this ministry of reconciliation to help others come and follow him as well. The way we talk about uh, being a disciple of Jesus around here is what we call our four W's. We say, uh, a disciple of Jesus worships Christ and walks with Christ and works for Christ and witnesses for Christ. And this series is really an unpacking of when we say those things, what do we mean by them? And how do we all speak the common language around that so that we can hold each other collectively accountable to what this life looks like? Now, two weeks ago, we began this series, and we began it with a very simple prayer. And I just want to bring us back to the simple prayer every week of the series. And here's the simple prayer. Lord, give me a wholehearted love for you and for people. It's simple, but you want that, I want that. We want a wholehearted, not half-hearted, not a divided heart, but a wholly devoted heart to God, love for him, and out of that will flow a love for our neighbor. This is what we're seeking to go after. And so today, we want to seek to unpack what we mean when we say worship Christ. When, when we talk about this worship W, what does that really mean? And so in every week of our series, what we're trying to do is, is root each of these W's in the Word of God. From that, define together the principle of what we're talking about when we say worship so that we're all on the same page. Because if we don't do that, that we could have a couple hundred different definitions of what we mean by worship. We want to all be on the same page of when we talk about worship as a, as a faith family, what do we mean by that? And then after Sunday, during the week in your discipleship group or with your family or with your roommates or whoever, you'll watch and participate in some equipping videos that we'll tell you more about at the end of the sermon here today. But today we're looking at this worship W. Now, let me say this at the beginning. Uh, when we talk about worship, and you hear me say this on a fairly regular basis, we're not talking about whether we are worshipers. We're talking about what or who we are worshiping. The fact of the matter is, and I said this on Easter Sunday, all of us in this room are worshipers. And, and even if you're here and you would say, no, I'm the, you don't understand, I'm the most like non-religious guy you will ever meet. The, the fact of the matter is, all of us hold something supreme, and that gets our devotion and our attention and our investment. That gets our worship. We all have something we hold highly that we respond in a way of worship. Now, 
Here's the danger of the human heart. Uh, John Calvin said that our hearts are an idle factory. We can produce all kinds of things that we elevate and that we worship. And it's a very dangerous reality. But here's the good news of what we see in John 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus seeks out uh, who I'm calling a worship-thirsty sinner. And he turns her into a perpetual, and I use that word intentionally, we're going to talk about why I use that word, a perpetual worshiper of God. Jesus seeks out worship-thirsty sinners. Are you thankful for that? He seeks us out. He comes after us. He didn't play a game of hide and seek, see if you can find me. No, he, Jesus said that he, is, that he came to seek and to save the lost. I praise God for that. That he sought us out as our hearts were thirsting to do what we were created to do, to worship. And he orients us, he regenerates us, he makes us new to take our false or wrong worship and to turn it right, the worship of himself. And so we see this in John chapter 4. And, and, and as I walk through there, I want us to three, see th- what I'm calling three works Jesus does. Three works Jesus does to turn us into right worshipers. And so we see that today. We unpack the principle of worship. This week we get into the practices of worship in our equipping video. Let me pray for us and then let's walk and worship through the word of God this morning. Father, will you come now and help? Lord, we thank you for the spirit you've given us who is the helper, who's the counselor. Lord, would your word be proclaimed accurately, boldly, passionately, reverently, And Lord, then we cast ourselves on the power of your spirit to orient that word, to translate that word into our heart so that we can see it and savor it and understand it and obey it. God, it's a miraculous work that happens as we walk through your word together. Will you come do that miracle in our midst for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, John chapter four, verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And so a a, a couple things we got to note here. Um, Jesus is beginning to gain some popularity in his ministry. He's beginning to gain a bit of a following. He has come now on the radar of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And, And you know, if you know the story of Jesus, the Pharisees are not fans of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is upsetting the apple cart, so to speak, of everything that they've been about and everything that they have been teaching. And so Um, Jesus here is, hey, I'm on the Pharisees' radar. He says, it's time to take off and it's time to head north for a bit. Now, I I want you to know something. This is not a move based out of fear on Jesus' part. Jesus is, 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 is running here a clear redemptive plan. He is, he is perfectly in control of the timing of this. There will be a time he'll come right back down here and he'll, he'll set himself right in the crosshairs of these Pharisees so that he can go to a cross and he can save a broken people. 
But now is not that time. There's more ministry to be done. And so Jesus says, let's head north for a bit. And he heads to Galilee, verse 4. And he had to pass through where? He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Joseph, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It says uh, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, uh, a couple things on this. If you've studied this passage at all, you know typically you'll find an explanation that there were commonly two paths you would take to go from Jerusalem north to Galilee. You could go directly right through the heart of Samaria. And uh, some would argue that like super devout Jews, because of their hatred for Samaritans, because they would not want any, um, any possibility of, of becoming unclean, would head down to the Jordan River Valley and then up through uh, up to uh, the Sea of Galilee area that way. Jesus takes the direct route. He goes right through the heart of Samaria, and we're told the rest stop that Jesus stops at, a place called Sychar. It says it's the place that uh, Jacob gave a field to his son Joseph. You see that in Genesis 48, and it says here's why it was such a pivotal rest stop. There was a well there. Wells were a big deal. Wells are where you got water. I, I didn't know if you knew that, but wells are where you got water. This well uh, was there in that day. This well, Jacob's well, is still there today. In 2014, uh, DJ, Hillary, Erica, and I drank out of this well. And one day, I can't wait to take a trip to Israel so you all can drink out of that well as well. But this is, the scene is set. You have a Jewish teacher in enemy territory, so to speak, in the land of Samaria at a place called Sychar, sitting next to a well. And this is the scene we see Jesus engage and seek out a worship-thirsty sinner. Verse 7. A, and I want you to note here, I want you to help me kind of read this. A, what's it say? A what? Verse 7. A, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, it doesn't seem anything remarkable there. She's coming to the well to do what you do at a well. She came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Why the profound pause here? This would have shocked the woman. Uh, this would not typically have happened in this day. And, and we'll talk about why what Jesus just said to this woman would have been so countercultural, so taboo. And she calls it out here. Give me a drink, verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, uh, 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 how, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John gives us his commentary a bit on this. For Jews have, what's it say? No dealings with Samaritans. Some of your Bibles might say, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She's flabbergasted at this. 
She's taken aback by this. She's shocked that this encounter is happening right away and I, right now. And I, I just want to pause and I want to outline three reasons why this would have been so shocking. The first reason Jesus asking and addressing her for a drink was so shocking is this. Uh, it was the deep animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans animosity goes back way, way, way before this. I would encourage you just for uh, just a rich study for yourself this week, study why there was such animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, so much of it centered on where they believed the epicenter of worship was to be. They're in this heated battle. It's in Jerusalem. No, 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 it's up here in Samaria. No, 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 it's in Jerusalem. Um, Jews would have referred or thought of Samaritans as half-breeds because of the nature of how they came to be about. The common Jewish conception in this day was that a, a, a Samaritan woman lived in a state of perpetual uncleanness and like there's nothing she could do about it. And so this is a shocking encounter and this is a shocking statement, give me a drink, because Jews and Samaritans, as John tells us, they had zero association with each other. The second reason this is shocking is because Jesus addresses a woman. It didn't happen in this day, especially with what we can tell of the setting of this. The, it, we're told the disciples have left. Jesus seems to be without his crew sitting at the well by himself. It seems that this woman has come to the well, and we'll talk a bit in a minute of why she might be coming to the well alone. It seems she has come to the well alone. Men did not address women in public in this day. And you especially didn't address if this was like a one-on-one -on -one situation. And we're going to see that as we continue in the story. When the disciples come back, it says they're going to marvel at the fact that Jesus is speaking to this woman. It doesn't say that they marveled that she was, it just said that Jesus is speaking to this woman. And so the fact that a Jew would talk to Samaritan, the fact that a man would address this woman in public uh, in potentially a one-on-one -on -one situation. And then the third reason this is so shocking has to do with Jesus' request. Give me a drink. John notes here, that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans or Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's the, the general translation of that Greek word is to not have dealings or to not associate. There's a more specific translation of that word that it can actually mean that you don't share utensils with. You don't eat with the same items. She goes, you can't drink out of this. How can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus has just masterfully done what Jesus does. He takes an environment, a physical interaction, and he now uses it to drive a deeply spiritual truth. Look at what he says in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
He says, give me a drink. And she goes, you can't ask me that. We, this can't happen. We, we don't do this. And he goes, but if you knew who I was, you would have come here today asking me for a drink. Now, here's the question. Is Jesus talking about a bottle of Dasani here? She's still trying to figure all this out. Look at what she says here, verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, so she's talking like, well, okay, how do you get this living water? Where is it? How do you get down to the... She's not quite there yet. And Jesus is going to keep drawing her heart, drawing her heart, drawing her heart. Jesus said to her, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Is Jesus talking about dipping a bucket in a physical well right now? He's saying, everyone who drinks this water, you will thirst again. You know this, I know this. It's why she come, has to come back to the well every day. But Jesus says, there's a, a living water that I'm offering to you that will lead you to never thirst again. And she, she's going to say here in verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Give me this living water. And the cry of all of our hearts in this room is, give us this water that can quench the thirst of our heart. What is this living water? Jesus is talking here about eternal life. And he said it will be a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. What's a spring? It's a water source, right? that which water just keeps flowing from. Upon faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit, which is a spring of water welling up to eternal life, constantly leading us to the worship of Jesus, quenching the thirst of our heart. Now remember who Jesus is having this conversation with. A Samaritan a woman, someone who his culture, his society would have looked at as a complete social and societal outcast. But I also want us to note here that this Samaritan woman doesn't seem to be only a societal outcast in the eyes of the Jews. This Samaritan woman seems to be a societal outcast in her own town as well. Why do I say that? When does it say that she came to the well? The sixth hour, high noon. 
the hottest part of the day, who does it say she came with? Noah. In this day, the role of retrieving the water typically fell to the women, and it was an act that was done in community. It happened in the morning or it happened in the evening around the hottest, uh, outside of the hottest times of the day, and you would go with the other women of the village and you would collect water and you would come back. It was a communal activity. Uh, this woman is here in the middle of the day by herself. Uh, it doesn't tell us, but what we're about to find out about her lifestyle most likely is because uh, she would have been a bit of an outcast even in her own town. I want us to see this, and I want us to understand these details because I want us to get something. That there is no societal, cultural, or sin hurdle or barrier. Jesus will not scratch climb and fight to seek and to save those who are lost. He will seek. He will draw near. He will pursue. His culture said, don't talk to her. He says, I must. Her culture seems to be saying, don't associate with her. Jesus says, I will because I have come to seek and to save the lost. The first thing our heart needs to ever understand in order to move to be a worshiper of God is this, that Jesus seeks out worship thirsty sinners and offers us living water. We have to know this and we have to respond to this. If you're in the room today and you're running hard and fast away from God, if you're living with a reckless abandon and you don't care what he thinks or what he says, I want you to know that you have a savior who loves you so much he's hot on your heels. And the moment you come to the end of yourself or the end of the road that you're running and you turn around, you will find the loving embrace of a savior who went to the cross to save you for all the sins of the road you've just been walking. He comes after us because he loves us. And he's walked right through Samaria and he sat himself alongside of a well to engage with a thirsty sinner who needs a new heart away from worshiping falsely and wrong things into worshiping rightly. Worship, and here's how we define it, and you're going to keep uh, hearing us talk about our worship like this. Worship is the response of praise and adoration to God because of who God is. Once we understand what God has done to draw near to us in Jesus coming to earth, worship is the response to that reality. So worship isn't something we have to like magically work up. Worship isn't something we have to like uh, figure out the right combination for. Worship isn't something we have to go like hide away in a cave and meditate until we come to this state of zen. Worship is the response to the reality that God has drawn near to us. And he's come to save us. And when your regenerate heart gets that, 
When we believe in God miraculously saves us, our heart now sings the melody of worship going, this is the one I was always created to worship. And we're going to watch this woman turned into a worshiper of Jesus. And so he offers this living water. He draws near to this thirsty sinner and he offers her living water. She says, sir, give me this water. She's thirsty for it. She wants it. She's not totally sure everything Jesus is talking about, but Jesus is going to offer himself to her. And it's interesting how he does this. He first needs to show her where her worship has been wrong. He's then going to teach her what right worship looks like. Look at what happens here in verse 16. Jesus said to her, so she's just said, I want, I want this living water. How do I get this living water? How do I get this living water? Look at what Jesus said. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And she's like, oh, crap. Sorry if you don't say that in your house. <laughs> if, like, you know exactly what she's feeling if you know the feeling of those times. God perfectly convicts on that perfect thing you need conviction on, and you know you're wrong on it, and you're just like, I don't care. And the Lord just, hey, Brock, I want to talk about that. Anyone else know that feeling? So the butter, I mean, her stomach is turning right now. She's like, oh. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. What's Jesus doing? He's highlighting for her the saltwater wells she has come back to again and again, dipping the bucket in, drinking from it, hoping it will satisfy the worship thirst of her heart, only to find it leaves her more thirsty. If you can imagine the scene next to a well of the loving conviction of Jesus just going, I love you, but you've been going to the well of man after man after man after man after man. He's convicting her of the salt water well wrong worship. How she respond to this? Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What's she doing here? So often we think, oh, she, she's changing the subject. Like, oh, let me change the subject. 
I actually think she's a legitimate seeker falling right in line on this train of worship Jesus is talking to her about. She goes, okay, you know something you shouldn't know. You're clearly a prophet or something. Can I ask you the biggest question at the heart of our religious divide? Where is the place of worship? She asks a place of worship question. Jesus does not give a place of worship answer. Look at what he says. Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now what? And is now here at the well. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This answer Jesus gives is massive. It's massive for her, it's massive for us. She asked a place of worship question. Jesus answers with a perpetual worship answer. Perpetual meaning ongoing, continuous, never ceasing. Uh, the, the worship that God wants is not just a place of worship, a place of worship kind of worship. It, it's important for her in that day and it's important for us in this day. We can too easily fall into a place of worship, worship. I worship at Redeemer Bible Church at the 11 o'clock service. Praise the Lord for that, right? But worship is not just a place of worship thing. Worship is a perpetual worship thing. Worship is an always worship thing. And now our culture will tell us, you keep your worship to your place of worship. You don't let your 11 o'clock Redeemer Bible Church worship leak into the workplace or leak into the classroom. And we look at our culture and we say, we can't not. We are spirit and truth worshipers. Once you've drunk from the living water, I can't come to work and not worship my way through it. We have to worship. We're compelled to worship. It's what all along they were trying to do to the early church. You guys stop that. Peter, John, James, you guys stop that. And they're like, hey, judge for yourself what's right. But as for us, like we're just going to keep worshiping God. Come on, people. We can't not worship. We can't just leave our worship to a place. It happens here. It happens at church on Sunday and then in our discipleship group. Jesus is after perpetual, ongoing, unceasing, never stopping worshipers. And he says the worship is to be worship in spirit and truth. Now, how many of you have studied this passage again and again? You're like, I just want the like, Someone give me what spirit and truth worship means in like three easy steps, right? What does this mean? What is worship in spirit and truth? D.A. Carson's quote helped me. Hopefully it helps you. Spirit and truth worship is essentially God-centered. That's first to, let's note that first. Worship is first and foremost God-centered. Can we just worship over that? We don't come to church to just feel better. To just not like, oh, we better get to church so we don't feel guilty. We come to church because our heart is made to exalt and exalt God. It's about him. 
It's God-centered, and then here's the spirit part. It's made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit. We cannot worship until the Holy Spirit takes the match of our heart and strikes it against the box. The Holy Spirit must prompt our spirit to worship. We can't work ourselves up in worship. The Holy Spirit must prompt our spirit to worship. You with me? He has to. And we can stoke it and we partner with him. We, we, we resist living by the flesh and we walk in the spirit so that this worship goes on. But the, whole, the spirit worship that happens in our heart is sparked by the Holy Spirit. But it's not just like, okay, is that like an experience thing? It's like, what does that look like? No, no, no. And in personal knowledge of and conformity to God's word, that's the truth part. We have to worship the true God. In our culture, right, we're having dinner uh, Friday or Saturday night. We start, strike a conversation uh, with the table next to us. Erica, at some point in the conversation, is like, he's a pastor, and I always know where the conversation is. It's going to turn one of two directions. Really, can I ask you the hardest questions of life? Uh, or, hey, we're like super spiritual. <laughs> so this one went the, hey, we're super spiritual route. And, and um, you know, she was talking about her prayer walks and whatnot, and it was... Uh, but very quickly into the conversation, I realized something. The God she's talking about does, is not in line with the character of the God revealed to us in the Bible. And so like, it's easy in our culture to, 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 to hear of God worshipers, but there's, we have to understand something. There is no worship of God without a right understanding of who God is. Y'all, it's why we come, op- come here and gather every week and open the book so that, so that the God of the book can teach us who he is. And it's why every day we get into the book so that the God of the book can teach us who he is because we can't know who we don't know. It's exactly what he said to the Samaritan. You guys worship who you don't know. We can't worship who we don't know. Spirit truth worship is is struck by the Spirit and flows out of a true understanding of who God is. And when that happens, we walk in a state of perpetual, ongoing worship. The Sunday gathering becomes the exclamation point of a week of worship and the catalyst into another week of worship, but the worship just keeps going. Someone say amen. Amen. It just keeps going. It just keeps going. And so then I love verse 25. She's trying to process all this. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her right here at a well to a woman who came to get a drink of water. He says, I who speak to you am he. We said in this passage, we're going to see three things Jesus does to prompt our heart to worship. What we've just seen is Jesus address someone in their wrong worship. She asks him a question about worship. And he teaches her what right worship is. He addresses her in her wrong worship. She asks a question about worship. He teaches her what right worship is. 
The second thing Jesus does to make us worshipers is this. Jesus convicts us of our wrong worship and invites us into right, perpetual worship of God. Anyone in the room here find themselves falling back into wrong worship at times? If it's true that our hearts are idle factories, aren't we often confronted with how easy that is to come back into the wrong worship? How easily and quickly we find ourselves dipping our buckets back into the salt water wells that just leave us more thirsty. I got a reminder of that this week. Um, We did a little vacation week. Most of the week we just stayed in town and just hung out as a family. And it's, I always, what I, one of the things I've learned is as I throttle back the pace of life, it usually becomes a good indicator for the Lord to reveal where I'm wrestling some idols of the heart. Because my days aren't just stuffed with the normal things. And so as, as, time, as pace throttled back on the first, uh, the, the first day of the week, I, I found one of my tendencies is when I throttle back, I just want to buy stuff. So we're driving back from the zoo on Monday, and a neighbor a couple doors down is selling a golf cart. I'm like, Erica, we have to have a golf cart. (laughs) And she's like, no, we don't. I said, yeah, we have to have a golf cart. Like, I'm going to drop you and the kids off, and I'm going back down to see how much this guy wants for his golf cart. I didn't buy the golf cart, okay? But I praise God for the Holy Spirit through the voice of my wife going, We don't need a golf cart. But what I find is when I slow life down and I create space in my heart, something so quickly wants to fill that void with stuff. Hey, that'll be a fun, new, shiny thing. And guess what? It will be. Until your six-year-old hops on it, crashes it into the nearest tree, and now you're spending money to repair it. Let's just throttle back for a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand. God, where do I keep dipping the bucket into salt water wells? Hoping it'll quench the thirst of my heart. And how do I let that be a tutor to me to teach me what perpetual, ongoing, spirit and truth worship actually looks like? And so he invites her into this. He says, I who speak to you am he, I am this Messiah. What's the response of a worship-thirsty sinner when the living water is right before them. Look at what happens, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman, what'd she do? The woman what? Why'd she come to the well? What'd she leave? When you meet the living water, you don't care anymore about the other water. There's better water to drink of now. She left her water, or she left, uh, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
They went out of the town and were coming to him. So they're coming to him now. So I want you to picture this, right? This woman comes back. You all got to meet this guy. They're coming out of the town. Jesus uses this as a teachable moment with his disciples. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Like, who gave him a sandwich while we were gone? Like, don't you love this? Like, it's so us. I would have said the same thing. Like, man, what, how, where did he, when did he eat? I was, I've been starving and he ate something? <laughs> Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Again, the city, the town's coming out to him. He's like, look, the harvest. They're coming. Already the one who uh, reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. So I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, a revival in a Samaritan village. Because a, 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 a Savior will cross all societal and sin boundaries to come and draw near to worship thirsty people, to seek them out and to save them, just as he said the mission of his life would be. We'll unpack more of this when we get into the witness messages of this series. But I want you to see that worship always leads to witness. You can't drink from the living water and not want to go let other people taste it as well. Once we've drunk from the living water Jesus has offered us, we have to go see, come and see. You have to meet him too. And this is what we see here. The third thing Jesus does to make right worshipers out of us is this. Jesus, Jesus satisfies the worship thirst of our heart, compelling us to go tell other worship thirsty people about it. He satisfies the worship thirst of our house, compelling us to go tell other worship thirsty people about it. Worship is, worship is the response of praise and adoration to God because of who God is. Once we see this, once we understand it, the only fitting response is to praise Him. Now, as a church, we want to define, like, what does this practically look like? Uh, each week, the sermon will be followed up in a, a, a website created by our communications team called Redeemer Resources. Uh, you'll see it on the screen here, uh, www.redeemerresources.church, www.redeemerresources.church. On that this week, you'll find a teaching on, okay, what do the practices of worship look like in my life? 168 hours a week, not just a Sunday thing, an all-week thing. And so watch this little teaser from the worship video that you'll watch this week. I'm intentionally creating consistent rhythms of praise to God. Now, two things that I want to press in on here, intentionally and consistently. What do musical rhythms of praise look like for you? And so what does this look like? Not just Sunday morning for 30 minutes when there's a band and loudspeakers and nobody can hear me sing, so I'll kind of sing kind of quiet so that I don't disrupt the people around me. And, but what does this look like Monday morning when you wake up? And honestly, this is where this gets really fun. 
not only musical rhythms, but now non-musical rhythms of praise. Okay, so, so what does that look like? Let's talk about some ideas. And again, you can get creative with it. It can look like so many different things for us. Pick a psalm and just praise your way through it. Uh, let's say Psalm 53. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And I might stop there and go, God, I thank you that you are a God who looks down on us. That you're not some God who just kind of set the world in motion and then left us and said, oh, I hope they figure it out. But you are a God who, who looks down on us, who seeks us, who comes after us. Let's commit together to seek after these things beyond just Sunday morning and beyond just a discipleship group. This is going to be a life of praise and adoration to the Lord. So what we want to do is each week go, what do these rhythms, practices look, look like lived out in our life? The practices you'll see unpacked in this video this week in your discipleship group or with your family or gathered with some friends are these. Uh, I'm actively participating in the Sunday morning worship gathering. There's a reason we don't neglect meeting together. We need this time. We need to fuel and fellowship with each other in worship. The second practice you're going to see unpacked in this equipping video is I'm intentionally creating consistent rhythms of praise to God. Intentionally creating consistent rhythms. So what's, the, what's family worship look like for you? What's a worship within discipleship group look like? What does worship within your neighborhood look like? And, and if you're thinking family worship, I mean, we're not the Von Trapps, right? Like what, like... It, it, it's not complicated, and it's messy and chaotic at times, and, and for us, you know, our nights end with uh, read, recite, uh, worship, and pray, and so in the boys' rooms, you know, and elves in there with us, we read, we recite, we worship, we pray. We read the Jesus Storybook Bible. Well, we recite the doctrinal truths we're learning through the kids' version of the New City Catechism. We then sing a song together, and they wrestle, and they hit each other, and it's crazy, and then we pray together. And some nights it's fun, and some nights it's frustrating, and every night it's worth it, okay? And so, like, what is just the consistent rhythms you're creating so that worship is 168-hour, like we're teaching our kids and we're teaching our families and we're teaching each other what it looks like ongoing? And then the third thing you'll unpack is this. I'm seeking awareness of idols in my life and accountability to destroy them. Because our hearts are idol factories, we need good community and good recognition that we constantly need to be identifying and destroying these idols. Amen? And so that video unpacks that this week. I'm excited for us to get in it together. Church, if you would stand, I want to pray and we're going to worship as we leave. But, but I would just say, um, it's really important that you engage in the equipping videos. So if you're not in a discipleship group, get on that website, do it as a family. Uh, this would be a great time to gather with some friends or other people you have in the church here to say, do you want to watch those together? And let's talk and then let's beg, borrow, and steal from each other to grow as worshipers all week long. Amen? And so, Lord, will you make us worshipers? We pray that, God. Uh, we know that uh, we just can't work up worship. It's a response to the reality of what you've done for us and who you are. And so, Lord, would we respond rightly? Would we praise, would we adore you, God, for all that you've done? And so, Lord, uh, make in us, uh, create in us a heart of worship, not only when we gather at church, not only when we gather at church events, but all week, all week long, where we live, where we work, where we learn, where we play. God, we ask this in Jesus' name.